Hello, and welcome to this Allen and Overy podcast. I'm Brenna Spicer, the senior manager at Fuse, Allen and Overy's technology innovation hub. Achieving net zero by 2050 is one of the greatest policy and economic challenges of our time. As we have seen from negotiations during the 27th UN Climate Change Conference, the policy decisions which need to be made to achieve these goals are numerous and complex. In today's podcast, we would like to explore some of the ways in which private investment capital can help achieve net zero goals. In particular, we will consider the infrastructure and technology required to transition to low carbon energy and the market structures which exist or need to be developed in order to support this. Joining me to discuss are David Lee, a partner in Allen and Overy's energy and infrastructure practice, Victoria White, senior associate in Allen and Overy's derivatives and structured finance practice, and Phil Beattie, head of strategic relationships at SparkChange. Welcome, David, Victoria, and Phil. Hi. Yeah, hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Let's start from the basics. Victoria, what exactly do we mean by net zero and why is it important? When we talk about net zero, we are referring to the internationally agreed target of achieving a state at which greenhouse gases being emitted into the atmosphere are balanced by the removal of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. This aim is underlined by the Paris Agreement, for example, which requires states to achieve a balance between anthropogenic emissions by sources and removals by sinks of greenhouse gases, and this is to be achieved within the second half of this century. A couple of points I did want to note at the outset are that when we're referring to carbon often in shorthand for carbon markets and carbon monetary markets, really we are talking about greenhouse gas emissions as a whole. And secondly, and importantly, this is a net goal. It is very much widely accepted that achieving absolute zero emissions isn't realistic within the end of the half century target. However, The aim is therefore to reduce emissions as far as possible, and then to make use of offsetting of emissions to achieve the net zero target. Thanks, Victoria. Phil or David, anything else to add on that? Yeah, I think just on that last point uh, about net being the critical word, we're not heading towards uh, gross zero, we're not heading towards a world where we don't need aviation fuel, um, heavy industry, and they will still be producing emissions in 2050 and beyond. So there is a misconception that carbon pricing mechanisms or greenhouse gas pricing mechanisms, as Vicky said, will cease to exist when we get to net zero. And that's very much not the case. Both voluntary markets and regulated markets will carry on for the foreseeable future. The EU emissions trading system, which we'll talk about more as we go through, is set up to run in perpetuity. These don't uh, cease to exist in 2050. And just just for me, um, yeah, the analogy some people use is the analogy of filling a bath and emptying a bath. That is Emissions coming in come through the taps when you turn them on and emissions leaving from the plug when you let the plug out. Now, I know it's not an exact analogy. Not many people take the plug out at the same time as they have the taps running, but, but you get the picture. It's, it, it's achieving a, a balance with the way in which emissions and the extraction of emissions is, is, is in a steady state of, of balance. Thanks so much. And, and David, you've been involved in the structuring and financing of a wide range of low-carbon infrastructure projects, in particular projects for wind generation and power transmission. What kinds of investment in infrastructure and technology will be key to transforming our energy system to meet these net zero goals? Well, that's, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, we, um, we in the UK, around a third of our uh, emissions generated come from energy use. And 
I think as I see the energy market in the UK, there's really four elements to the transition. The first is is the one that we're heavily involved in as a firm currently, and that is building more renewable or low carbon generation capacity. So we're seeing a lot more offshore wind. The North Sea off our coast is um, is home to close to 70% of the world's offshore wind. That will continue to grow. The UK government is looking to effectively quadruple the supply of offshore wind in the UK. So a huge building program needs to be financed, needs to be invested in by our clients. And then similarly, on the nuclear side, the UK government confirmed yesterday they would continue with the Sizewell C program, and uh, we're working on that. That's an exciting project. So first time, building more renewable and low-carbon generation capacity. But I think the second point is really important. It's really important to recognise that it's not just a like-for-like replacement, but the energy network needs to adapt because we can't just knock down a coal-fired power station and replace it with a wind farm. But we have to deal with the geographic shift so that that we're going to have more decentralised generation, which isn't always close to the population centres who use the energy. So we need to build out the energy network, the transmission system distribution, to ensure that that can be made to work properly. So big investments, a lot of work for us in building and rebuilding the energy networks. Third element I would say that's relevant to me as well is the the time shift transition. That's because renewable energies such as wind or solar are more intermittent than just burning coal or gas in a large power station. So some way of storing power and also incentivizing power use when the wind's blowing or the the sun is shining through metering, market design, carbon pricing, local storage at the home level, uh, I think it's critical to ensure um, that we can use the new resources we're building to generate power efficiently and benefit from what we're building. So those elements, changing the regulatory environment, changing how markets work, I think is essential to get the most out of what we're doing. And then Finally, fourthly and finally, I would say using and developing new technologies such as carbon capture, use and storage to remove carbon from the industrial processes that are difficult to eradicate entirely. So having projects that that allow that to happen and seeing investments come forward in those areas is something we're beginning to see, particularly in the US, I would say. But also deploying clean fuels such as, as hydrogen as a replacement for less clean or dirty fuels. I would say. So I think those elements we're seeing uh, attracting investment through equity, through funds and through the supply of credit in our, in our business. At the moment, more on the first, more building new generation. But also, I think we're excited about the, the opportunities in the other areas. Thanks, David. I mean, clearly, there's a lot of work being done here and, and moving to these new technologies and systems will not be a straightforward process. And and really requires support and cooperation of public and private sector interests. One of the means by which policymakers have tried to encourage companies to move towards new energy sources um, is through mandatory carbon permit schemes. Phil, can you tell me a bit about these uh, compliance carbon markets? Yeah, absolutely. So for governments, there are really two ways of pricing carbon in regulated markets. There's carbon taxes, and then there's cap-and-trade systems, the mandatory systems that you're just referring to. And really, the advantage of a cap and trade system uh, is that it actually sets a limit on how much pollution can happen in line with Paris Agreement goals. 
So if a tax isn't high enough or isn't adjusted or technology doesn't develop quick enough, people will just continue to emit. So the advantage of a, of a cap and trade system is that you can actually say this is how much uh, pollution will be allowed to occur and the market will find the price rather than the other way around. So in these systems, governments issue carbon allowances, which are effectively permits to pollute. And for firms that are covered by these systems, they must source and surrender one permit for every tonne of CO2 or equivalent that they pollute into the atmosphere. Every year, the governments issue less allowances than the year before in line with their Paris Agreement goals. And that achieves two things. Firstly, it means that over time, pollution from the industries covered by that system must go down. Supply is finite, compliance is 100%, so pollution will continue to go down. But also by design, it helps to push the price up and by doing so, bringing to play new abatement technologies as economically viable options to decarbonize our economy. And one real advantage of it is this isn't a question of governments trying to pick winning technologies. So to David's points about how you think about interconnecting electricity, you know, the system doesn't decide that better battery storage of solar power that you can use in the winter or better interconnection is the right answer. They just say, we will reduce the supply and the market will work out who is best incentivized to decarbonize and that lowest cost of decarbonization will set the price. Around 22% of the world's emissions are covered by regulated carbon pricing today, mostly in cap and trade systems. By far the biggest and most liquid um, is the EU system, the EU emissions trading system, and that's the one I'll mainly be talking about today. It covers power generation, heavy industry, bits of agriculture and transport, along with petrol taxes. In total, it covers about 80% of emissions within the EU, and the UK is in a parallel system that, that is almost identical as well. Thanks, Phil. So I understand that in addition to compliance markets, there is a growing interest in developing voluntary carbon markets. Victoria, can you tell us a bit about how these voluntary markets work and, and who currently uses them? Of course. So as the name suggests, any involvement with the voluntary carbon markets is entirely at the option of those who choose to participate. The markets were not established by legislation and they developed organically over time. The real idea was that they would be complementary and supplementary to the core compliance markets, which Phil just introduced. While both the mandatory markets and the voluntary markets contribute towards putting a price on carbon, the key distinctions when you're looking at the voluntary markets is that given that they have developed organically, there's been historically pretty much a uh, pretty limited by way of centralized oversight and they are less established and inherently sort of more fragmented in terms of infrastructure than the well-established and backed by legislation mandatory markets. A sort of background into what they are and how they work, I sort of take it back to first steps I think. Projects are set up predominantly in the global south with the promise of reducing and removing greenhouse gases and these projects are assessed by at the moment a wide range of different standard setters and these standard setters have different geographic and sectoral focuses and their own criteria to verify that the projects are reducing and removing greenhouse gases as they propose to do. Once assessed against these criteria, the standard setters will issue the appropriate number of voluntary carbon credits, which reflect therefore the level of greenhouse gases reduced or removed. These credits are recorded on and they're transferred via registries. And there are a number of these at the moment, which leads to some of the fragmentation in the market. And so a credit represents a unit of greenhouse gas removed, avoided, reduced. And entities can completely voluntarily buy and trade credits. 
and they can retire them on the registry at the point which they want to use them for their own purposes to claim an offset against their own emissions. Perhaps one that due to current technology, they were unable to reduce their own emissions in order to comply with their own necessary targets. I think that brings me on to who's using these markets. Um, As I said, as the name suggests, no one's required to, but they are particularly helpful for entities in those hard to abate sectors where technology does act as a limiting factor on their ability to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. The key idea really of the voluntary markets is that you should reduce where possible first and then mitigate second. I think Phil's really introduced um, how the markets sort of support the change and heading towards net zero. Um, But I would just add that against the the background of the huge estimated costs for achieving net zero targets, the key point is that in exchange for obtaining and getting hold of the voluntary carbon credit, those purchasing them are essentially driving private capital towards those verified underlying projects. And so driving private capital towards projects which are scientifically verified as removing and reducing greenhouse gases. And given that the voluntary carbon credits can and are traded, it really assists with uh, achieving transparency on the price of carbon. Thanks, Victoria. Phil, did you have any other perspectives on on the carbon markets? Yeah, I think it's important just to understand that both are important, but they have different roles. So regulated markets are within the systems themselves, although they're not transferable across, there's no prospect of a global market. Within the EU, permits are completely fungible. So you as an investor can buy an allowance from, say, a steelmaker in 2022. You can hold it for 20 years. You could sell it to a cement manufacturer in 2042. And then they're also unsubstitutable from outside. So there are no loopholes. You can't use an offset. You can't use an allowance from the California system. You can't pay a financial levy. It doesn't matter what other greenery you get up to. If you emit one tonne of CO2 or equivalent in Europe and you're covered by the system, you source and surrender a permit. And that means yeah, they're fungible within the system, they're unsubstitutable without, and it gives them a higher integrity from both a financial and an environmental perspective. So these are things that can be used as investments in portfolios, whereas offsets really aren't because as soon as you utilize the environmental benefit embedded into an offset, its value goes to zero. So they're just performing different roles. As Vicky was saying, the primary aim of offsets typically is to mitigate emissions that you can't actually reduce within your own operations, whereas these are mandatory markets are the main policy tool of governments to deliver their broader Paris Agreement targets. That's really helpful to understand that that dynamic between the two. Thank you. So now that we have the basics down, I guess I'd like to understand a bit more about why we need both, I guess, the real life developments in infrastructure and technology alongside the, the functioning carbon markets. I wonder, David, if you might be able to elaborate a bit on that. Yes, of course. I, I mean, I touched in, in my introductory remarks on the types of investment in physical assets that would be needed. But obviously, the, the size of the challenge, which is described, I think, very clearly in, in our publication, which is on our, our website, Financing the Gap, is something that we do need to think about. Now, there it's quite clear that the amount that needs to be invested in physical assets is in the trillions. Estimates vary between two and three trillion additional dollars in physical assets from now until 2050. And that doesn't really grow on trees, if you like. The current levels of investment probably need to quadruple, quintuple or even more. And the starting point, I think, if you 
look at the this from a high level is do we need to just let the market continue as it is that is wind projects and solar projects can be built without subsidy often are and therefore investors you could argue don't need help to invest in in those projects to decarbonize but to achieve the scale and expansion of the generation capacity needed and ancillary elements of the energy system that are needed to deliver net zero, we need to really upscale significantly the level of investment. So I would say wind and solar need to become even more attractive to investors to attract greater investment. And if you look at a wind and solar generation facility and compare it with a a gas power station, for example, you could say pricing isn't massively different between the, the power produced by both, but that's because they don't we, we don't still don't price carbon accurately. And once we do that, it will have a significant impact, I think, on the desire of investors to invest in cleaner energy generation capability, I would say. And 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 certainly when it comes to other technologies like carbon capture use and, and storage the development of hydrogen supply chains and hydrogen becoming a replacement fuel in industrial processes without significant incentives in place, it won't really be capable of being delivered on the scale needed to deliver net zero. So I think you need the incentives to build these physical assets, you need the markets for them to sell into, but I think you also need appropriate pricing of people's outputs from these types of types of projects. Thank you, David. That's really that's really helpful. I mean, Phil, we should we should probably mention that your company, Spark Change, is a current member of Fuse. What problem is Spark Change solving for investors who are seeking to support net zero and, and how does your solution work for them? Yeah, so uh, Spark Change was founded really to bring together carbon markets, both via investment products and analytics and the financial markets and help to utilize the power of financial markets to drive us closer towards our, or get us on a better glide path to our net zero goals. So the first thing we launched was the world's first physically backed exchange traded product based on a regulated carbon market. And you can think about this very similar to gold funds. So in the same way that a gold product allows you to access a physically backed gold investment without needing your own vault to store that gold bar in, we've done the same with carbon allowances. So it's a, a pure Delta one instrument. If you believe the cost of uh, polluting carbon into the atmosphere will continue to rise uh, for major polluters in Europe, then this is a way of accessing that return stream. So first and foremost, the product gives you an asset that many people think will increase in value and has low correlations to pretty much uh, everything else in terms of major asset classes. But then there are also two more benefits, and that's really around impact and around risk. So I'll touch on risk first. Broadly, portfolios are negatively correlated with rising carbon prices because rising carbon prices are a cost that companies can't pass on in full to their underlying clients or consumers. And obviously holding some carbon allows you to mitigate that risk. But from an environmental perspective, if you actually withhold permits from these systems, you delay emissions. In the case of Europe, you actually trigger uh, ongoing cuts in supply into the system as well. And by doing so, you create decarbonization activity and you help to, yeah, as I say, to get the world onto that better glide path. So for an investor with a net zero goal in future, as almost all big investors across asset owners and asset managers have, they want to be net zero in 2045. They know what their finance emissions are today. They don't know how to bridge that gap. 
and the opportunities to deploy that amount of capital that's required simply don't exist, as David was explaining. So what you can do is use these markets as a transition tool. So if by investing in carbon, you help to push the price up and you incentivize a steel maker to invest in a green steel plant, if you own that steel maker in your portfolio, then your finance emissions will go down when that steel plant comes into operation. And so over time, driving, yeah, that holding in carbon will actually help to reduce the finance emissions of a portfolio and help to encourage those big capex decisions we need to get us back on track. Thanks, Phil. And I guess in, in your experience, when do the kind of solutions spark change off or when did those tend to work well for investors and when, when might they want to actually look elsewhere to some of the other opportunities? Yeah, so we tend to find that everyone is interested, to be honest, because everyone is thinking about carbon exposure and everyone is interested in a diversifying asset with some alpha generation opportunities. But probably the biggest barrier is the upfront cost. So if you're simply looking to mitigate the emissions from your operations, you can do so with a very high quality offset for a fraction of the 73 euros as I speak, price per tonne of a regulated permit from the European system. The difference, of course, is you're hoping to sell that allowance later, hopefully at a greatly increased price. Whereas with an offset, you are, you know, it's a it's a cost to your portfolio to deliver you know, that short term uh, decarbonisation and mitigate those emissions. I don't know, David, David or Vicky, do you have any other kind of perspectives or what other factors investors might want to consider when they're, you know, looking at investment opportunities either in, in real infrastructure or or markets? Well, I think for me, the key one of the key things we haven't talked about, but which I think is is critically important, is that once policymakers decide on a particular approach, which they will have signalled in advance and allow investors to, to make decisions, that there is regulatory certainty going forward. And I'm not saying that, that laws never change in the future, but to the extent investors are relying on a particular framework or a particular design of markets to support their investment, then flip-flopping around and changing approaches is definitely a killer to encouraging investment and maintaining investment in future. And that's something I think all governments need to be really careful about. I think that's a really good point. Everything that we've been talking about in those regulated markets today is written into into law. So the, the EU, both in terms of their uh, net zero goals, is written into law, their commitments for 2030 initially. 2050, but also everything we've been talking about in terms of the way they manage supply. And it's typically set in 10-year blocks to give investors that certainty. And you know, the next 10-year block is sort of announced the rules of how they will manage that system many years in advance as well. So that regulatory certainty is really important to allow people to make those you know, sort of well-judged CapEx decisions for the polluters and obviously to allow investors to judge the quality of what they're investing in as well. Yeah, the final point for me on that um, is, is I think it's also, and this is, I think, particularly difficult for governments, it's also important to realise that decarbonisation isn't just an energy play. I know we've, I personally have talked a lot about energy, but emissions come from transportation, manufacturing, agriculture, as well as energy and other sources as well. And most governments divide up responsibilities for particular, I guess, state delivery components to different, um, different departments wherever you go in the world. And traditionally, they've operated, if not in silos, but certainly on parallel tracks. But to deliver a proper, coherent regulatory response requires quite a lot of communication and coordination between those within country as well as cross-border. So I think that's something we all have to encourage 
our respective governments to, to get better at. Thanks, David and Phil. Victoria, are there other questions you and your colleagues are getting from clients about either mandatory or the, the voluntary carbon markets? Yeah, we're definitely seeing an increase in interest. And so I would definitely echo what Phil said, that everyone is interested in carbon. We've seen a huge uptick in queries from new entrants or people who are considering being new entrants to both the mandatory and the voluntary markets. And actually interest from people who are given sort of the press and sort of external pressures around net zero targets have clearly been reevaluating their own policies and are actually coming to us very much on day one to say we would like to be involved in the carbon markets without necessarily a clear plan as to which or to how. And so we've been supporting clients by giving this sort of introduction we've done today, actually, about the options available. And in particular, we've seen clients outside of the UK and EU, actually, sort of considering accessing either the UK or the EU cap and trade system which is possible. And you can actually access the EU in particular, given its its vast size, as Phil outlined earlier, is a very popular option for people to sort of move into. And you can access that through any EU state. So from a legal perspective, it raises quite a lot of interesting questions about which for a given entity would be the most preferable market. So we've conducted some analysis around the ease of access, any requirements, documentation, some clients interested in the publicity around that application form and what consequences there are of sort of potentially publicly signing up. What does that what does that mean and what are they committing to? And I would say on the voluntary side, it's a slightly different, slightly different set of questions just because it's a more nascent market. But we have received questions around, it sounds very basic, but the legal nature of voluntary carbon credits. And again, to be a bit of a lawyer about this, everything is a lot more established in the mandatory field. They were established by legislation and there is legislation which tells you or at least gives you a very good idea as to what the legal nature of one of those emissions allowances is. In the voluntary sphere, they've developed organically and people definitely are buying and trading voluntary carbon credits. But there are sort of residual questions about legally, what are these, particularly in different jurisdictions? And I'm sure you can imagine there are a lot of different potentially relevant jurisdictions if a project is set up in Brazil, but a credit is held on a registry in America and it's been bought by someone in France and it's been sold to someone in the UK, for example. And ISDA has published a paper around this outlining some of the questions and relevant considerations uh, which listeners might find helpful. The, The other question we're getting in the voluntary sphere is actually around documentation. There have been a huge number of initiatives and efforts over the past couple of years to scale up the voluntary carbon markets to support that drive of private capital into the net zero efforts. And as part of that, one of the preeminent projects was the task force on scaling the voluntary carbon markets. And towards the middle of last year, they issued sort of a public calling for industries to work towards creating standardized documentation and In the interim, we've been helping clients with developing their own forms of documentation for trading as seen as one of the things which will really help these markets scale up. And I guess it's a watch this space because ISDA is intending to publish documentation, at least on the derivative side. So hopefully that is one of the barriers or concerns of people to entering the market will hopefully be alleviated in hopefully the next few weeks. Just if if I could. Brenna, just to pick up on Vicky's first point there, as she correctly said, anybody can go and open an account to be able to trade the allowances themselves. But it is a cumbersome process. So SparkChange have done that 
you know, and even for us with our expertise in carbon, it took us quite a lot of time, effort and money to do so. And that's really the goal of Spark Change is we've turned that into a security that sits on the stock exchange. So on the London Stock Exchange in Frankfurt, in Milan. So anyone who can trade on a stock market can already hold that product. Also, the allowance itself can only be held on digital registry. So isn't a transferable security and can't be held, for example, in usage portfolios. So whilst it is certainly true and definitely an option that some firms with sufficient scale can look at, really what we're trying to do is democratize access to that market by turning it into a transferable security that you can buy and sell on exchange. Is there anything else, David, that you wanted to add just to close out the, the picture here of of voluntary and, and involuntary or voluntary and compliance markets, as well as the, the wider infrastructure that needs to be supported by these markets and, and policy generally? No, not really. I think the only, the only point which I think we've hopefully made clear is the importance of the coordination between how markets are designed and, and operated, uh, uh, translating through to the delivery of physical assets on the ground that are going to actually reduce emissions and take emissions out of the system. Thanks, David. And thanks, Phil and Victoria. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your insights today. Thank you for having us on. And thanks to the listeners. I encourage you to take a look at ANO's other resources relating to decarbonization, including the report that David mentioned, Financing the Gap, a blueprint for decarbonization. And that report sets out steps we consider necessary to accelerate decarbonization. We also have a podcast series called ANO Market Horizons, where you will hear Victoria and her colleagues discussing carbon markets in more detail. And hopefully we'll publish soon an overview of the documentation solutions Victoria mentioned, which are being published by ISTA. In addition, SparkChange have a number of resources available on their website, including a paper called A Three-Pronged Approach to Low Carbon, How Carbon Markets Aid the Transition to Net Zero. And of course, if you'd like to discuss the topics we've covered, please get in touch with any of today's speakers or your usual ANO contact. Thanks very much for listening.